Support for At Length comes from the University of Washington Alumni Association. Welcome to At Length. I'm Steve Scher. Christoph Boda, you're a professor and chair of modern English literature at LMU Munich, Ludwig Maximilians Universitat München. That's the university in the heart of Munich. Recognized as one of the premier academic research institutions since 1472. Yeah. I would imagine there are a lot of stories that haunt that university. Is that true? That is true, but then I'm, of course, I'm not an expert when it comes to the history of my university, but it is a, an old and, and venerable institution. It was not always located in Munich, which may sound strange because today everybody refers to LMU as Munich University, and, but there was a time when um, the Dukes of Bavaria did not want to have their state university in the state capital, so pretty much like Oxford and Cambridge in England. So for time, what is now the University of Munich was actually located at Ingolstadt and at other times at the pleasant town of Landshut. And if, if some of our listeners um, are familiar with the Frankenstein novel by Mary Shelley, they will recall that Dr. Frankenstein got his degree from the University of Ingolstadt which is my university. So you can tell we have a great tradition in the life sciences. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> and, and perhaps when you construct stories about stories, you are, you are bringing life to the inanimate. I think I think that is so because it's um, you bring the, the you make the past alive, uh, but you also invest what 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 has happened with some sort of meaning because, as you relate a story, as you tell a story, you are relating things from the past to your present point in time, and by that I would argue, and that's not a very original thought, I mean many others have had it before me, you do create meaning because you do relate yourself in a meaningful way to something that is no longer there, and that is what I would call a past narrative, and so many of our narratives, so many of our stories are past narratives because they they combine and relate events that have happened to each other and then to us as storytellers in order to bring out the importance that this event or these this chain of event has for us today. That is so. And yeah, you bring the past alive by telling stories about it. I was thinking, when, when you are talking, I was thinking about the movie Selma mm-hmm. and how the movie Selma re-investigates and maybe reinvigorates the story of the civil rights movement brings it to today when it is still happening today. Yeah, and you, the other night I, uh, I watched the, the Oscars and you could see the, uh, the way the, the audience responded not only to the movie soundtrack but also to the clips from the, the movie Selma, that this indeed has a very, very powerful impact. And I would even say that the, the meaning of a past event is not something that is safely pickled like in a glass jar, um, but it is something that is permanently recreated because as long as stories reverberate with a present public, um, the meaning is still in the making and, and it was quite obvious, was it not, that this story is not finished. Yeah, okay. Okay. That music was powerful too, wasn't mm, it? Yeah. That was pretty profound. Um, about that as well. Uh, 
they did something. I saw John Stewart. You know John Stewart. Mm -hmm. Last night he said best thing he'd ever seen on television. <laughs> <laughs> Typical John Stewart. <laughs> yes. You have published. You have published twenty four books. Yeah. Uh, including the novel, an introduction, and future narratives, theory, poetics, and meaty historical moments. Co-authored that with Rainer Dietrich. Reiner Dietrich. Uh, Eighty-plus scholarly articles focusing on romanticism, narratology, critical theory, aesthetics, travel writing, twentieth-century literature. Your work is about the story of the story. Is that that's fair to say? A meta view mm -hmm. of uh, culture, of telling, of us telling each other tales. How do you explain your field of studies when people go, "What? What, what do you do? How do you explain that to them?" Well, I think. Uh, with every expert, and it doesn't really matter whether you're working in the humanities or in the natural sciences or in the life sciences, you always have to pick up people where they stand, and you have to take into account their their level of, level of knowledge and, and experience. So when I say uh, I examine what old stories that were ever told have in common, I remind people of uh, how they tell each other's stories all day, stories of, of their lives, that would be on a very, very big scale, but also when they come home from work and they tell their partner what they've experienced during the day, uh, stuff like that, or uh, people go on vacations and when they come home they maybe have a slideshow and tell their neighbors and friends what it was like. And we're storytelling animals, and, and I, I do believe that um, storytelling is the sort of oxygen that, that we live on as, as intellectual and emotional beings. And, and what I do is, as, as somebody working in the humanities, I look at all these different tales and stories and narratives and try to identify certain recurrent patterns but also um, some specifics that are specific to just one type of narrative and that are lacking in another type of narrative. So, And I think that most of the time when I talk to people who are not from academe, they do understand pretty well what this is because it is not something far out like modern-day astrophysics or quantum physics that nobody really can understand, but everybody loves uh, the theory of everything, uh, which I love too, and congratulations to the main actor here. Um, but um, this, I mean, the great advantage that we have in the humanities is that we're basically researching what is around us every day. Even the past is around us every day in the form of movies or museums or books that you read, no matter whether they're historical novels or books of history. So it's not, we do have a great advantage in, in the humanities in that our objects are visible and to a degree understandable to everybody. And I have, I am afraid that we working in the humanities uh, do not always see the advantage this has for selling our discipline. What what we do is really of, of great concern to the to the general public, I believe. Why? Why is that? Because we, we're surrounded by all the things that, that we as humanists, uh, work people working in the humanities, are looking at. I mean, if somebody tells you uh, about what, what is a black hole, that may be interesting as such. But um, as far as I know, they've never even identified one black hole. They're just postulating the existence of these black holes. That's interesting. When I say my object, 
of inquiry is stories. Nobody doubts that these stories are all around there and everybody knows them. What attracted you early on to this uh, way of this discipline? Uh, I must say it was, at first of all, it was just the love of language and the love of, of, of literature. I, I am German, but I grew up in a very Anglophile uh, family, and uh, the sound of English was in our family as long as I can remember. And it was also a, a very book-loving family, so we kids grew up reading books more than watching television. I think I was 13 or so when uh, my my father bought the the first TV set at the instigation of my mother. He did not think it was necessary to have a TV in the house. We had lots of books. Uh, we loved literature, all the way from children's books through young adult books to classical novels. Then poetry became my love, and when I became a student, I wanted to, to uh, read English and American literature, and that's that's what I did. So, if you will, I have made my first love and my hobby my profession, and indeed I do regard it as a vocation. Of your twenty-four books, are any of them fiction? They're not. Uh, I uh, I have to I have to admit that um, so many of my friends encourage me to write my novel, and they want me to write a, a sort of campus novel, a university novel, I'm sorely tempted to do that because I do feel that kind of satirical strain in me. But I do not really know that um, once I retire, I really want to, to, to still be mentally preoccupied with my professional life as a professor. And uh, No, but I, I did write some, some poetry when I think, I guess, like, like everybody does in their in their teenage years and and when being a student and uh, but that's that's only for me that's that's as an exercise i must say that the the more i learned about uh, the tricks of the trade and um the more i learned about english language poetry and what grandmasters like shakespeare and john keats and t.s eliot did the more I understood that I, I would never, never, never play in, in, in any league that is anywhere near to them. And give, me, give me some examples of what you encountered with what they were doing in terms of, again, this is about the construction mm -hmm. of information. What were they doing that amazed you? Well, uh, maybe this sounds like a platitude because, again, this is not an idea that is in any way original with me, but I think the great thing about poetry is that in poetry... Um, the form um, is itself uh, meaningful, which means that you cannot possibly paraphrase the so-called message of a poem without losing what is indeed essential about it, namely the way in which it is conveyed. The two are absolutely inseparable. Like, um, for example, just as in art history, um, if uh, somebody described a a still life, and said, well, what you see is a banana and some grapes and a dead pheasant or so. That, that sort of description, even though it would be totally accurate, would never give you the faintest idea of, uh, faintest idea of what it means to be looking at that painting and to take in those colors and forms. So 
to say about uh, a John Keats poem, this is a poem about Nightingale, is at like Ode to a Nightingale. Is it once true? Well, nobody could deny that, that the Ode to a Nightingale is somehow deals with Nightingale, but it's so dreadfully wrong because that is not the decisive thing about the poem, that it's about the Nightingale. It's about mortality, it's about transience, it's about the, the meaning of life. And all that um, just um, um, par exemple du nightingale, if that is that is the wrong French word. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, so this analytical approach to the novel, you, you wrote this, an analytical, analytical approach to the novel deepens our understanding of the text, deepens our appreciation of the work. How do you go about exploring that? What are the steps to take? But I think the, the the first thing when I when I teach the novel um, to my students and many of them, they 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 don't like poetry and they think if they opt for fiction, they uh, they don't have to do any sort of analysis. Uh, they think it's enough just to paraphrase the content of the novel, and then I make clear to them that uh, just as I pointed out with regard to the painting or to the uh, John Keats Nightingale poem, that doesn't work for the novel either. That doesn't work for fiction either, because if you say, which would be a con concrete, uh, a, a, a correct summary, that the novel Ulysses by James Joyce is about one day and two half-nights in the life of Leopold Bloom, who, who, is, uh, who works for a newspaper uh, in Dublin before the First World War, that is both correct and totally incorrect because it doesn't yield the, any of the experience of reading Ulysses. And then I will give them excerpts from, from the novel and we'll analyze it, how it is told, how many different narrators do we have here? And for example, you being a journalist, there is one chapter in Ulysses um, that is called Aeolus, that is the unofficial name uh, to the chapter because uh, James Joyce just gave numbers to the chapters. And that chapter is located in the newspaper, the Dublin newspaper, uh, office rooms that Leopold Bloom works for. Now, the form that James Joyce has chosen for chosen for that one particular chapter is newspaper articles and captions. So, what you get is a caption and a, a small snippet of an article, and then, and and of course, that is ingenious. It is wonderful. At the same time, Aeolus is, of course, the god of wind. The wind. Okay, you get the picture. So James Joyce did not have a too favorable opinion of journalism. Okay, but it's also the wind that blows through the leaves. Leaves equivalent to being the pages of the newspaper. So you have all that, these metaphorics unfolding. And um, the once you have explained this to to anyone. They will no longer say, well, the decisive thing about that chapter is that it's in newspaper offices, sit located in newspaper offices. Uh, but, but, but they would understand, no, it's the form, it's the telling of it that is really vital here. We, I've been thinking a lot about um, the difficult books. So I've been thinking about Ulysses and Finnegan's Wake. Mm -hmm. And I've been thinking about some Faulkner, uh, Absalom, Absalom, I think, and Abs As I Lay Dying. Yes. Because those are difficult to read. Yes. What does that? What does that? Why is that? Yeah. Why does the author do that? And why are they difficult? Yeah. 
Well, um, they are difficult. There is no denying. And, and they are difficult with a purpose. Um, I believe that um, most literature um, tries to, to challenge uh, the reader's views of the world, what we accept as normal reality, maybe even as, as commonplace. And uh, um, no mistake about that, many, many novels are uh, written in order to confirm the views of reality and life and meaning that we have. And they, they provide easy reading. But we're now talking about difficult texts, the texts that are written to challenge those assumptions and what we feel when when we say this is a difficult text to read is that our normal ways of processing these narratives simply won't work so we in order to get into the text we have to redefine our approach and that is exactly what these avant-garde novels do they challenge our everyday assumptions so that hopefully we, in the process of reading these books, may become a different kind of person. Mm -hmm. And that is always, uh, th th that presupposes always a, a, an investment of time and energy and mental energy and, of course, a certain, a certain flexibility on, on our part. So the, um, I always encourage my students uh, do not give up too easily, mm -hmm. and uh, and and never, never approach a, a book with too much respect. Because I think uh, one thing can be said about these really challenging books is it doesn't really help to have too much respect for them. Because what they demand from you is mental flexibility and a certain creativeness on the part of the reader. But if you stand there in awe and have just too much respect because everybody has told you how Ulysses is such uh, an impossibly difficult book, that is just not the right sort of attitude. Do sit down, pour yourself a glass of wine, if you prefer wine or, or any other stuff that you like, and lean back and be determined to be... to, to enjoy yourself. There is such a thing as enjoying oneself even though what you do is kind of difficult. I mean, mm -hmm. think of people who climb mountains. I don't do that, but I have friends who do. It's an exercise. They come, they come back in the evening. They're totally exhausted, but they are absolutely happy. And I think some reading experiences can be like that. By the way, what do you think of Finnegan's Wake? I have to admit, and this is, of course, when they hear this in Munich, they will sack me. Um, I have never been able to read it in its entirety. Well, that's because it's impossible. <laughs> well, maybe it is. I don't know. But impossible, we shouldn't pass that judgment too, too easily. I mean, re no, remember... Um, like when when the first when the first um, non-objective paintings were produced in the around 1910, um, most people would say, um, "Well, that is not a painting because uh, the, the, I can't can't make out any object that would be represented here." The painters would then argue, "Well, the reason why you can't find one is that it is not that sort of painting. Okay, it, there is no recognizable object there. So sometimes but you." But there is a story. In how 
far as there a story? That's this, this story that I'm telling you. <laughs> that's this story that I'm telling you. Well, you know, I mean, there are some some pretty um, uh, enigmatic objectivist paintings that have human figures in there and objects and, and still um, seem to withhold their exact meaning. A great art of, uh, part of art criticism is about the enigmatic uh, side or ambivalent, ambiguous side of, of painting. Uh, now what I mean the, um, that um, maybe one would have to, to ask what, what exactly is meant by, by unreadable. Um, if you mean that um, that Finnegan's Wake is non-paraphrasable, I would grant that, but so is Ulysses, okay? Um, and so are many other novels that we think of, of as um, as um, readable. If you if you mean readable in a in a simply physiological sense, I would contest that. Of course, it's readable. It's a printed and bound book. You can buy it for a couple of dollars. There's absolutely no there's no reason why you should not be able physiologically <coughs> to read it. But if you mean by um, unreadable. Uh, that it is uh, impossible for in, for anyone to to pinpoint one specific meaning after after even after you've read the the whole book, I would say that that would also be true for a very great number of books that are absolutely canonical. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe it's even the definition of a good novel that it escapes that kind of. Um, fixation uh, that it is a constant a constant provocation well let's face it the the books that um, mean most to us are the ones that we return to which is also proof of the fact is it not that we have not yet done with the book and in that sense too Finnegan's Wake would be an I would say it's a it's a readable book, but it's it's an unfinishable book for very systematic <laughs> well, reasons. Do you find yourself dipping back into Finnegan's Wake no. every once in a while and saying, "No, no not." No. But what? So what do you reread? Um, I mean, the I'm when we look outside uh, English and American literature, I'm a great fan of um, Thomas Mann's, so I can read Thomas Mann's novels time and again. But with regard to American literature, I do not know how many times I have read um, The Scarlet Letter and Moby Dick because I make it a point that every time I offer a course on these American novels, I do read the book again. And then I compare my the notes that I've just taken <clears throat> with the notes that I took a couple of years ago. And of course they're different because I have changed. The text is the same, but I have changed, and then I think that that is what every reading should do to be be a fresh reading. And uh, when it comes to twentieth century literature, I'm a great fan of Thomas Pynchon's uh, and other American writers, uh, but British writers as as well. But also uh, what they call world literature in English. Salman Rushdie, I think, is is just a, a fantastic writer. So you read in other languages. You read in German. You read in uh, English, reading others, French. What what are you finding any difference in the structure of stories 
because of the different languages those stories are conveyed? No. No, there, there are not any, significant, not any significant differences. The differences that are there um, are, can be found on a micro level, but not on the level of, of story, paraphrasable story. The differences that are there have to do with the different grammatical structures of these, of these languages. So, for example, in German it is possible because of the the things we can do to our verbs and adjectives and, and nouns, it is possible to construct very, very long sentences because the grammatical function a word has is defined by its end syllables, whereas in English, which is more like an analytical language, the grammatical function of a word is defined by its position uh, in the sentence. Okay, so in German and in other languages of that kind, like French or ancient Greek, you are at very, very great liberty to um, shift around the position of a word in the sentence, and it will still be marked as fulfilling this or that function in the sentence by uh, by its ending. So the and and that that is why in German literary language, take the example of Thomas Mann. Uh, you have these incredibly long sentences. I remember that one of the tasks that I had to perform when I passed my examination in um, in English and and uh, in, in English language and English and American literature was to translate a page of Thomas Mann's prose into English. But of course, the difficulty was that that one page was one sentence, <laughs> and of course, in order to translate that into English you would have to split it up into four or five independent sentences. Otherwise, it did not, it just wouldn't be possible. And you had to have it make sense. Um, it had better make sense because it made a lot of sense in Thomas Mann, and that should not be lost. You, um, you asked this question in, in your book, in the, in, um, in the novel, an mm. uh, introduction. You asked, what would be the difference if the narrative structure of a novel was like, like this rather than like that? Mm. What What are you? Give me some examples, and how does that, uh, you know, how does that help you and yeah. deepen your appreciation? Okay. Yeah. Well, just just imagine that you had uh, one and the same story, but once it is told by a first person narrator to whom this or that happened, and in another version the supposedly same story would be told by a third-person narrator who knew everything about that person's past, present, and future, and also everything about the personal histories of all the other characters involved in the story. I think the difference between the two would be so obvious that most of us would say they're not the same story, <laughs> because in the first instance what you get is just a very a subjective take on a story, and as a reader, you would then have to weigh the evidence whether you can trust the first person narrator. Does he or she maybe have a reason to 
occlude some of the things or does he even if he doesn't consciously try to mislead you is he really in a position to ever give you the full story of the story which of course the auctorial narrator could so it it it, it really does make a difference um how and when a story is told or, or by whom the how and when is also interesting i mean if if somebody in in a in a work of fiction tells you a story that happened to him some three decades ago, why is it that he rem- remembers by heart a conversation that goes on for 15 pages or so? Everybody would say, or many people would say, that's the most unrealistic thing. Yet it happens a lot in realist novels, and nobody takes exception to that. That is because, I believe, we tacitly accept the rules by which realist fiction plays and take it as a matter of course that although in real life nobody would be able to recall verbatim such a conversation that happened 30 years ago it may well be in fiction and you do not take any exception exception to that yeah, yeah. but of course the first person unreliable narrator is an absolutely astounding phenomenon i mean my uh, we usually distinguish um, unreliable narrators between uh, into two classes. There are those that are uh, deliberately misleading you because they have a reason to to mislead you, and there are those like um, if somebody a little child or somebody who's deranged tells you a story can't help it. Okay, and but in the wonderful case of Vladimir Nabokov's Lolita. We have those two cases in one because Humbert Humbert is both um, mentally deranged and he is deliberately misleading you. And but the great thing about unreliable narration is, of course, that when when students are first systematically exposed to unreliable narration, <clears throat> they always go, oh, this is so difficult, and everything that he tells us, we have to weigh whether we can really believe this. Is it plausible? Is it credible? And I always tell them, well, this isn't difficult at all, because we, all of us, do it every day. Because every day when somebody tells you a story, you have to sift the evidence and weigh it, and you have to think whether you can, do I really believe that? Like when she tells me Saturday night happened this and this, do I believe that? I mean, given given my background, given her background, do I believe that? It's we do that every day, so we should not be so surprised if the if a novel demands this from us. Also, uh, Christoph Bude, you uh, in future narratives you talk about um, a unified theory and a poetics mm. of future narratives. You best define future narratives for me. <laughs> That's very easy. Um, what I'm saying is that most of the narratives, stories that we have, are past narratives in the sense that they connect events that have already happened, A, B, C, and they're uh, uh, connected in a narrative in a unilinear way. There's only one direction. You go from A to B, from B to C. Now, future narratives are narratives that do not operate with events that have already taken place, but future narratives are stories that have at least once in their structure a situation that allows for more than one continuation. So as a reader, you find yourself in a situation that has not just one continuation, A to B, B to C, but that has 
more than one. For example, um, there's a novel published in uh, 1969 by John Fowles, the, the late British novelist, The French Lieutenant's Woman. And that's a novel, <clears throat> a mock Victorian novel. Maybe uh, some of our listeners have seen the movie with Meryl Streep. A novel that has two nodes, because right in the middle of the book, the main character is um, presented with a choice. He may either leave the train or stay on the train, and depending on how he decides, the story will continue. Now, most readers are not fooled by that, because the, the mock ending right in the middle of the book is heavily flagged out as a mock ending, because we know we still have 200 pages to go, so everybody accepts continuation number two as the supposedly real one, but this happens for a second time, some six pages before the real end of the novel. We have another bifurcation. Either he enters a house or he doesn't enter a house. So we have two nodal situations, that's where you have a bifurcation, uh, resulting in three different endings, all within the same book. So um, French Lieutenant's Woman is definitely, given that definition, a future narrative in that it has at least one node. Well, besides the playfulness, what's the value of that? Well, the value of that is that um, such books, and I'm not only talking about books, but also about movies, videos, gameplay, computer simulation of uh, real-world uh, processes, these narratives give you a sense of the openness and and undecidedness and contingency of every present moment because we live in such a complex world that it is absolutely impossible for any one of us to predict what will happen in the next minute or so. I mean, any time that door over there might be opened again, any time they might switch on that music again that disrupted this interview earlier on. We don't know. When it, when it happens, we will be able to tell in retrospect, okay, yeah, that's because the person outside uh, switched the switch, okay? But any moment is so full of potentiality, and one way to preserve that openness and potentiality in literature, in movies, is to work with nodes and to expose the the viewer, the reader, the player, to that, if you will, gameplay situation that he, he or she may pursue different continuations of one and the same situation. So what you, what you get is a plurality of multilinearity uh, of storylines that you do not find uh, in past narratives. I think that by definition and for very understandable reasons, past narratives linking events to each other, events that have already occurred are by definition unilinear, there's only one line, okay, but um, future narratives, definition, must contain at least one node, one bifurcation, if, if you will, are by definition multilinear. How do you, and you wrote even future work, you were talking this towards the end of the book, future work will look at how future narratives are refracted through different media. Yeah. So how do you think this, is this an evolution of our storytelling? And if so, how is it manifesting our, itself back in our culture? Yeah. 
I definitely believe that it, it can be seen as an evolution because we know empirically that first these ideas of having bifurcating stories uh, with different storylines um, is, is handled in books. But the medium of the printed and bound book has something in it that makes it difficult to realize a, a full future narrative. This is a bit different when we when we go into the visual media. Like there are movies that have nodes. Run Lola Run is a famous German movie that has one nodal situation with free continuations. It's a fabulous Gwyneth Paltrow movie, Sliding Doors. Whereas one node, does the woman catch the subway in the morning or does she miss her subway train? And it's two totally different storylines, okay? The thing is, if you go to the movie theater and watch these movies there, you as a viewer have no agency. You look these continuations in a consecutive way. But you buy the movie on a DVD, you might pretty well watch the third continuation first, then the second, and the first as last. And you go one step further, you go into gameplay and online games. It's the... I would say future narratives fully come into their own in the electronic media because these are media that allow for that sort of play that is um, very, very difficult to present in the medium of the printed and bound book. Like one thing that, that people are fascinated with who are thinking future narratives um, is wouldn't it be great if um, you as a player or avatar or reader could go back to a situation in which you found yourself previously, the, the famous Robert Frost, the road not taken thing, because we can't do that in life, but you can in gameplay. There are a number of games that allow you to go back to one um, important situation and maybe go down the other road, okay, and, and play that through. Or if the game is not structured in such a way that you can do it in one and the same run, you can, of course, play it for a second and third time and see what the consequences are if you take the other road. Yeah. And I think there is, it is playful, it's explorative, and I think it answers to a deep need um, to experience something, if only by proxy, that every one of us would like to know what would the consequences have been had I done this rather than that. So it is at one and the same time both intellectually stimulating but also emotionally stimulating and it helps us to develop a different view of the future as an explorable territory that can be navigated in different ways, that can be, if you will, up to a point governed and colonized, if never so totally, I think that should be clear, but it exposes us to the excitement of, of the present moment. When we look back upon our lives, we invariably think of our lives as past narratives, unilinear, and that's so important. I'm, I'm, I, I, I will not denigrate the importance of past narratives. They, we, we live in them. They, they are the telling of those stories is what conveys meaning to us, and we, we need meaning. Otherwise, we would be leading meaningless 
existence is, but that other aspect, that there is always something out there that wants to be explored uh, in a way that is not existentially threatening, because that's also a great thing about the arts that I am talking about, literature, movies, videos, gameplay, they're all virtual. They don't, don't have drastic and dramatic consequences if we, if we make a mistake. Well, you know, Christoph Buda, that gets me to this, this thinking about this question. Uh, a reviewer, occasional columnist for the Times Higher Education, the first English literature scholar to receive a European Union research grant to explore into future narratives. Now, beyond that they're responding to you as an intellectual, is there something that the EU, a political entity grappling with, a future that is fraught with options, opportunities, and dangers. Are they tapping this in you to try to maybe explore some of these ideas, <laughs> or is it just is it just academia? Um, well, let, let, let us. Let, let, that's the the ten thousand dollar question. <laughs> no, I don't think it was. Well, I saved it. <laughs> I don't think there was any political reason that that they gave me this fantastic grant. Um, and it, 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 I, I think I was chosen simply on the basis of the, the quality of my proposal and, and my track record. Maybe that sounds arrogant, but the, the thing is I, I, I did sketch out in, in my proposal that there might be some um, practical applications to the, um, uh, to the results that we might find after three years' time, um, but I don't think that played a decisive role. You see, the, the great thing about real research is that it is always about things that you do not know. That is what research is about. That's why I asked for time and money and manpower. It, uh, I would have been foolish to promise anything about a field that I was practically totally ignorant of when I started research into this. I think genuine research is always about what you do not know, and therefore you cannot. And the same is true not only for the humanities, but also for the natural sciences and the life sciences. Um, if they say this will, this will definitely, the results that we'll produce in 10 years' time will definitely have this or that practical impact, they're lying. They don't know. They don't know. We never know what the ultimate results will be and what their practical consequences will be. Now, with regard to the EU, uh, if I may just add this last remark, um, I, am, I am a firm believer in the idea of the United States of Europe. I am uh, certainly very critical of some institutions that we have. I would very, very much like to see the democratic and the social side of the idea of Europe given more prominent prominence uh, than it has been given in recent times. Well, you see, that's why I asked, because there is cultures are shaped by their stories, right? Mm -hmm. Societies are shaped by their stories. And I have been thinking a lot about, well, I just read the New York Times Magazine this weekend, had uh, Marine Le Pen talking about how they're successfully reshaping their, repackaging their, their their party, and there are the rise of these other parties. And at the same time, there is the EU grappling with, are we the United States of Europe, or are we an assortment of different cultures? Yeah. So there must be in the, uh, the thinking, 
I would think in your thinking, just as you say, looking for a story that is uh, a European story in the way we tell ourselves yeah. in America we have an American story. Yeah, yeah, and sure. And once I produce my story, like everyone else is entitled to produce their story, it will be a different story, and it will be competing with other stories. And and we shall see what what happens what what happens to that. Surely one way to present the story of the European Union, its idea and its realization would be to, to say what the, what the actual people living in Europe are benefiting from and what the downside is and what we've seen, what we've seen recently. So um, maybe it's just not true that the, the Germans are bailing out the Greeks. Um, maybe we're bailing out German banks. And that would be a different story then. Uh, Christoph Buda, thank you. Thank you very much. Pleasure and privilege. And mine. Support for At Length comes from the University of Washington Alumni Association.